The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. This is episode number 397. In just a little bit, we will have Kristen Hatton joining us to talk about her new book, Parenting Ahead, Preparing Now for the Teen Years. Uh, But right now I'm here with Brent Corbin, Executive Director of RYM. Brent, how's it going? Great, John. How are you? Good. Um, It's really weird you always make us call you Executive Director anytime we refer to you. Um, I don't know. Just got to get used to that. It's just how I live my life, and it's how I've tried to order the ship here. So. Everybody, John John is being sarcastic. Let's hear that. Yeah, let's let's be sure to say that. Um, No, Brent, I do appreciate you joining us today. I know you're on the road. You're currently in San Antonio, uh, traveling. So thanks for making the time to to come on. Yeah, we've been asking people to share resources, and I would love for you first to share a resource related to ministry that is currently helpful to you. Yeah, so this one's going to be a little bit of a roundabout answer, but um, I had, there's a gentleman in Houston that people have been telling me I should meet with and try to talk with about RYM. And so I've been trying to do that, been wanting to get with him Uh, in anticipation of um, trying to talk to him. They said, well, he's actually written a book and it might be helpful for you just to get to know him some through a book that he's written. So uh, the man's name is Terry Looper and he's written a book called a sacred pace. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's not a long book at all. It's really, um, it's, it's a book about uh, decision-making and, and discerning the will of God. Um, and I've run into a lot of books like that just through the years, especially through years of doing college ministry, because that's a perennial question that college students are trying to discern is, do I do this or do I do that? Or do I date this person or marry this person or not? You just kind of, it's a, it's a big question time of life. Um, I found, I have not found as many of those books for um, just the rest of adulthood as you enter into the you know middle or even latter years of life. And uh, Mr. Looper's writing that book from, I think he's about 65 or so at the time of writing. And so he's reflecting on his life, um, which by all accounts, he's a very successful businessman and um, leader of organizations and in churches, uh, lay in a lay capacity in churches and stuff. But he just has this um, really, it's a four step kind of process that he works through for himself and in kind of breaking down the big decisions of life, important decisions. And um, I just found it really helpful. It's, um, it, it, it's, well, by the title, it's a sacred pace. So it's a lot about slowing down and not um, just rushing through those big decisions, not uh, taking on the anxiety of the situation, but trying to remove yourself from everyone saying you have to make this decision right now, right now, right now, to saying, I've got to slow down. I've got to pull back. I've got to gain wisdom and talk to people who might have um, something to say about this issue. Anyway, it's just a, it's a really neat book. I'm actually, I never do this. 
Um, I, I rag on my wife and my daughters for doing it. They reread books all the time, and I just don't understand that. I'm going to reread this one because um, I listened to it the first time, but this time I'm going to actually go back and reread it to take notes because I think uh, this guy, uh, Terry Looper, and I have a similar personality in that we I can be really caught up in the moment and be drawn into the anxiety of a situation and not necessarily bad anxiety, but just the the rush of the adrenaline or whatever. And um, that's in by his own admission, that's him. And so I feel like I have a lot to learn from him and how to slow down and um, really prayerfully uh, pull back to a slower pace uh, in some of those bigger decisions. So very, very helpful for me recently. Now that, that sounds very interesting. Um, I might have to check that one out. And I do, I've, I've got to put you on the spot here. Um, you said you listened to this. Did you listen to it on like time and a half? Um, because it's a sacred pace. I just thought of the irony there. No, <laughs> no, no, straight up. Okay. One X. Good job. Way to go. Way to go. Um, <laughs> sorry. So uh, I do have to ask as well, other resources. Uh, that's something that's not related to ministry, a resource that's, and again, we, we keep telling all our listeners, this is resource kind of loosely, um, something that's just kind of been a blessing to you. Yeah, um, I we were up in Pennsylvania in the month of March uh, for the Northeast Youth Ministry Summit, and I got to talk in with Walt Mueller and his wife, Lisa. Lisa grew up in, um, gosh, what's the name of that town? Uh, not uh, Whatever wait. it is up there. Um, Youngstown, that's not Youngstown, that's Ohio. Sorry, I'm blanking on this. I'm a, Johnstown, Johnstown. Okay. So, um, yeah. So apparently there had been a really famous uh, flood called the Johnstown flood back in the late 1800s. And um, they were talking about it as this, it, well, it was, it was a horrific flood and cataclysmic event by all accounts. And um, they had asked, I, I knew nothing about it, just not being from that part of the country and it being so long ago. So uh, apparently David McCullough has written a book about it. And so I went and listened to the book on audible and I love kind of historical fiction. I mean, it was more of a historical narrative than fiction, but, um, as he writes, he kind of plays up certain aspects of stories. So I found that really fun. And with it, having a fun connection to Lisa, um, thought that was pretty neat too. So, uh, that yeah. was, I don't know if that's even a resource. That's just a fun <laughs> book that I read recently. Um, a lot of my spare podcast listening is um it's really boring <laughs> financial news and stuff i'm kind of a i don't know those are my when i work out i listen to various news information stuff on financial markets and macroeconomic events and all kinds of stuff which is it just is as boring and nerdy as it sounds so i apologize <laughs> to all the listeners for enduring this well, you say that, but I can guarantee there are listeners out there who that just resonated with and, and they think, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. So anyway, you never know who's going to resonate with that. Um, so Brent, hey, thanks for sharing those resources. I'm sure people will be blessed by that. Uh, for now, here is Kristen Hatton. Today, I welcome Kristen to the podcast. Kristen, how's it going? Great. It's good to be on here with you guys. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was welcoming you and I forgot I'm welcoming you back to the podcast because I had to look. It was actually episode 
170 uh, where you you were on. That was a long time ago. I don't know if that was 2017, 2018, something like that. I do not recall. Was that, were we talking about FaceTime? Well, it's funny because I don't recall either. I I don't remember totally, but um, yeah, I was going to say you've written FaceTime, you've written uh, Get Your Story Straight. I know you wrote a study on Exodus, so it could have been that one as well. Um, Yeah, so I don't remember. And we're here to talk about another book that by the time this airs, it will be released. So our listeners can get that. I'll put a link down in the show notes, but the title is Parenting Ahead. Um, and before we really dig into that, I'd love for you just to tell our listeners where you're joining us from, and then also talk to us a little bit about, uh, counseling. I know you've recently gone back and gotten your master's and pursued that. Just kind of give us a little bit of the background there. Yeah, sure. So I am now in Dallas, Texas, which is actually where my husband and I met, but we have more recently been in Oklahoma, um, until just this fall. So we are new back back home in a sense. Uh, We are also new empty nesters. So I have a married daughter and two college age sons and have shifted from writing for teens to parents. But um, through ministry and raising children is what really put this call on me to want to go back and get a master's in counseling. I mean, as a pastor's wife, I've unofficially done lay counseling for years, first in our ministry to college students when my husband was RUF pastor, and then in our church plant and neighborhood and community. But after my first couple of books came out for teenagers and I was speaking a lot more, many parents were confiding in me about their struggles with their children and the issues they were dealing with. And they felt a lot of shame. These are Christian parents who felt like everybody else in the church had it together and they were struggling. And so they would confide in me. Well, there was only so much I could do from afar. If you go in and you speak somewhere and someone talks to you and you can offer them a prayer and and a little bit, but I really long to do more the one-on-one long, hard journey that you can do as a counselor. So, but I also felt like, okay, I have the theology, but I don't have the counseling training. So I went back fairly recently got my master's in counseling. I um, love working with teenage girls, particularly, but just the whole family system, um, obviously from a Christian perspective. Um, But my hope is in doing more proactive writing, speaking workshops from a counselor's perspective, I can maybe help prevent all the problems more on the front end, like to help equip parents so that some of these issues that we're seeing and the disconnect that occurs between kids and their parents maybe could be lessened. And maybe some of the issues that I see so frequently, we could stop. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's encouraging to hear. And I know that has taken just a ton of, of time for you to, to go back and to, to go through this and to put the, the time and energy into that. So just thank you for wanting to do that, to serve God's kingdom uh, more faithfully. So just thank you for that. Um, I, I, I do also want to welcome our executive director, Brent Corbin. He's here with us. Brent, how's it going? Hey, great. Thanks, John. How are y'all? Good. Um, and I know the two of you know each other, and I know... Uh, y'all were briefly catching up as we uh, were starting uh, right before we started recording. So just remind me 
Brent, do you, do you remember the first time you met Kristen? Uh, Kristen, any funny stories on Brent, vice versa, whoever wants to jump in? I better cut her off there before she <laughs> says anything. Now, so I know, um, I know Kristen's husband, Pete, a good bit better than I know Kristen. Um, Kristen and Pete uh, met my wife, Sarah, at Baylor when she was a student, and Pete was her campus minister for four years there. And so Sarah got to know them some, um, but I was late to the Hatton show uh, after Sarah and I met, and then I kind of met Pete through that. And then Kristen, I think probably came to our wedding with Pete and that might've been the first time we officially met, but then I've gotten to know some of the Hatton children through, uh, through the years and uh, just being around the RUF world before I came over to RYM um, their daughter, Rebecca was on staff with RUF. So talked with her some and yeah, just love that whole family and have appreciated y'all's ministry for a long time and, um, love your books. I love just everything you do. I like, so I'm glad to <laughs> well, be in this conversation you. with you. It's a small world. It's fun to, to keep crossing paths in various ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And am I making this up? Did, uh, what were some of your children in Brent and Sarah's wedding? Is that right? The boys were ring bears. Yeah. And Pete bears, was, right, yeah. and Doug Servan were both officiants. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. They did the half and half thing. So it was great. Yep. Yep. I kind of remember my boys dancing at your wedding. <laughs> we had lots of fun things. Sarah had a sister who at that time was newly pregnant, didn't know it. She passed out from up front. And then we oh, had wow. uh, dancing boys. We had lots of things going on. So <laughs> it was quite a day. <laughs> uh, so look, let, let's get back to your book, Kristen, uh, Parenting Ahead, Preparing Now for the Teen Years. Um, I'd love to start just with the title of uh, of the book. I always am curious how an author came up with uh, the title. So just talk to us a little bit about that, how you arrived at that, and just kind of what separates this parenting book from some of the other parenting books that are out there. Sure. So Parenting Ahead is really the idea of uh, what you do now matters in the long run. So because I am a new empty nester, I have been there, done that, so to speak. I can reflect back on things from the early years and see it played out over time. And so I can see how when we do certain things or don't do certain things, what that looks like as our children get older. So I wanted to give parents who are not yet to the teen years a forward looking picture because it's so easy, I think, to lose sight of where we're headed. We get caught up in the mundane of just day in and day out. And it's easy to get discouraged, to lose patience, to to be steadfast in what we're doing. And so I thought if I can help create this picture to help give view or light of what this looks like um, down the road, maybe that um, would help motivate, help encourage, encourage, really encourage and equip parents. So that's where the title comes from. But I've just seen with parents so much fear surrounding the teen years. Um, And then at the same time, I also see a lot of parents who are in the teen years just throw their hands up, just sort of resolute that teens will be teens and what can they do? Well, what we do matters. Um, That's not to say that God is not sovereign and he is not in control and that if we mess up, because we will mess up, there is no perfect parent. And this book is not a book of formulas. 
Um, however, there are gospel foundations that we can lay that can help make it, I'm cautious to even say easier because there's nothing about parenting that's easy. It'll still be hard, even if we do these things. However, um, sometimes we make it even harder on ourselves um, when we abdicate our parenting responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Brent, I'd love for you to jump in, but I know you, you kind of begin the book this way, just talking about parenting in this long range endeavor, as you were just talking about. And it's interesting how you said, you know, th- this goes against so much of how our culture thinks that our culture wants instant results, you say, and kind of this desire for ease. And so our parenting or just the the idea of parenting is in complete contrast with that. So maybe just talk about how it's in contrast with that and just kind of this long range endeavor that you're trying to encourage parents towards. Yeah, I give the analogy early in the book um, of the farmer from James 5. And if you think about if anyone listening is a gardener or a farmer, you know that your crops don't just pop up overnight. I mean, it takes a lot of work. It takes being purposeful, intentional. It takes tending to the soil and spraying pesticide and pulling weeds. And then we have things outside of our control, like the weather. And so we steadfastly and patiently endure, but we keep doing what we need to do with the hope of what is going to be produced. So that's an analogy I give that to just to encourage parents to be patient, to not give up, to be steadfast, to keep the longer range goal in mind and not get lost in the daily, which I know only by the grace of God, is that even possible? So I know human efforts, it's really hard. Um, We need community. We need the church. uh, We need each other. We need God's word. We need his truth uh, to help remind us of these things. And in that early on too, you make mention in the book, uh, just the statement of how entrusting our children to God is often uh, a great challenge. I I know for myself, um, entrusting my children to God is, is easy early in the morning when it's very quiet and I'm in there reading the Bible and praying and it's, you know, I give my children to God again that day, but the moment they wake up and the crazy starts, I feel my temperature rise, the temperature in our house rises, my desire to not just parent, but to control my children and to, you know, micromanage their lives in all kinds of ways to keep them from pain and um, all the various things that could affect them negatively during the day. How, how have you learned both through your own experience with your own children and then uh, in the realm of counseling and leading others, um, how to bring the gospel and how to, to help parents to fight the instinct to control our children? Because it's, it's readily uh, available, <laughs> that, that desire. Um, the, our culture and just the world we live in kind of encourages that in some ways, the helicopter parenting stuff. So I don't know, what, what help could you give for us in that realm? Yeah. I mean, the temptation to control and protect, um, to order is is strong. Um, I don't think there's anything harder than trusting God with our children um, and that patience that I talked about, because we see things in our in our children that that cause a lot of fear. I mean, I talked about just the fear I see in in parents. And so often we 
because we do want the instant results, we start focusing in on their behavior and not their heart. And so we lose sight of what is it we really want to produce. Do we want moral children or do we want children who love Jesus and know they are loved by Jesus? And so it shifts our focus. But I, I mean, I can tell you, I and you, you'll read in the book too, that I very much tried to control. I was a huge nag to my daughter who was our oldest. Um, so for me, it, it really came through the fire of parenting and realizing my own idol of control and the, the futileness of it, um, that ultimately God is writing the story for our children. And this is encouraging or maybe not, but he uses their sin and struggles and our sin and struggles to accomplish good. And I am better able to rest in that now than I was, you know, a decade or so ago when Rebecca was a, a early first teen. Now she's almost 25. Um, but I've really come to rest more in knowing that, okay, he is in control. He loves my children more than I do. They are going to experience trials and struggles that I can't fix, but I tried so hard to do that early on. And it just caused us to butt heads. It caused Rebecca to feel like, um, I didn't think that she would be equipped to go to college because I was constantly on her micromanaging her, which we see now. I mean, mental health research shows all these college students, young adults who are really struggling with depression and anxiety and low self-efficacy and entitlement and all these issues that really, if we unpack it, we see that our own parenting idols are so much of the cause of that because we either fell into the camp of over-parenting, try to do everything for them, or the underparenting, um, we just wanted to give in to their every desire so that they would be happy. And yet that leaves them also ill-equipped. Uh, th that's helpful. And I'd love to maybe camp out here a little bit longer on the over-parenting and under-parenting, because even I thought it was interesting how uh, you, you talked about over-parenting and you said, you know, there's some positive qualities like at the root of some of the overparenting. And it's it's interesting to hear you say that because you hear overparenting and we just immediately think of negative. But I thought you were gracious to highlight, look, this some of this is actually coming from some some positive quality. So maybe just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And I think that as parents, our intention is well meaning, even though it gets our sin gets mixed in with it. So really, so overparenting is, as you probably guess, synonymous with helicopter parenting. But parents in this category tend to be warm, supportive, and responsive, which is great. But when these qualities are coupled with a high level of control, which there's our idol of control, parents exhibit too much responsiveness and over-involvement for what is appropriate for their child's age. And then with underparenting, I don't mean that to be neglectful or uninvolved parents as we, as we might think. So, I mean, you might hear the term underparenting and think, well, who would, who would be an underparent, but really it's referring to a permissive parent and these parents too, they love their children. They are warm and responsive. Their desire above all really is for their kids to be happy, for there to be peace in the household, to have a good relationship. This might be the parent who just wants to be BFFs with their child. Um, there's a lack though of boundaries and exerting parental authority, um, sort of an abdication of shepherding our kids. 
um, interesting. Again, pointing back to that research, research shows that young adults from both types of these parenting styles struggle with the same things, which I, when I was in my counseling program, I just, I was in a particular class and just got fascinated with that and read every journal article. And these were not Christian journal articles, but just everything that I could get my hands on because I was so intrigued by how these two very different types of parenting could lead to the same adverse results that we're actually trying to prevent in our control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that is interesting. And, and like I said, I like how you, you add some nuance um, to this overparenting and underparenting. And, and Brent, I want you to, to jump in next. Before we leave this, I thought it was helpful too that you said how you can um, do both of these at the same time, because I'm, I'm assuming there are parents out there listening to this thinking, okay, I'm either going to be an overparent or I'm either going to be an underparent, one of those, but you actually can do both of these at the same time. So maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And, and we might tend to be one or the other, but depending on the situation, depending on the kid, we can fall into, to either camp. I mean, my tendency is to control and maybe want to overparent, even though I would definitely have denied being a helicopter parent, because I think I would compare myself to others and think, well, I'm not that bad. Um, but certainly I was still trying to control, but then in other situations, I, I did want to just keep the peace. I did want to give my kids, I I didn't want to have to set boundaries or I just, it just seemed easier. And I I feel like I mentioned at the beginning about the parents of teenagers that tend to just throw their hands up. A lot of times, you know, you start out a lot more resolved and then you get beaten down and it gets exhausting. And especially maybe the the third or fourth kid and you're just like, forget it. What, what's, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. So then we kind of go swing over to more of the underparenting side. You talked earlier about, um, you're talking about talking to parents who just have a tremendous amount of shame from the way they parented, whether over, under, uh, or whatever that might've been. Um, I've noticed in the past, probably 10 years in earnest, certainly the last five years or so, just the rise of awareness of shame as a category that Christians carry, you know, and, and pulling it apart from guilt, being a more specific, you know, result of a sinful action or something like that, whether you committed it or someone committed it against you. Shame is just that broader soup of something's wrong with me. I've messed up and it's generalized. Um, as you've interacted with parents and maybe again, from your own experience, um, how, what have you found to be effective in addressing just that general soup of shame? Because, you know, a big generalized problem of, I just feel like I'm a bad parent. That's a, (laughs) that's a huge statement. Um, how do you even go about pulling it apart and, and finding some threads in there that you can talk to parents about? I mean, where do you even start? Uh, when you're um, talking to parents who just feel like they've really blown it. Yeah. I mean, thankfully God is a God of, of redemption and he redeems all things. And like I said, he uses all things. So even if we have messed up, it doesn't mean that we're lost or our kids are lost or it's, it's all for nothing. Um, the number one thing that I think that we can do when we recognize that there are some things that maybe we should have done differently is to ask our children for forgiveness. I think so often in the counseling room, what I see is kids, 
teenagers coming in, they see um, the failures of their parents, but they also see this, this pride and this um, unwillingness to repent, to say, I'm sorry. And it's more of a sweeping it under the rug, but then the parents want the, the child to see all their wrongdoings. Um, so there's a lack of identification and the, and the kids, I mean, that is very hypocritical to them when they see it. And so I think when we recognize it, mm-hmm the best thing we can do is, is tell our child, I'm sorry. And maybe if we've been going down a path of of parenting that we recognize, okay, this, I, I, we need to set some more boundaries or we need to do something different to have that honest conversation with our kids and say, please forgive me. I, I realized that I should have done X, Y, Z and, and have that conversation. I mean, as kids grow, they're aware of these things. Um, And yet so often I'm just finding parents and children just don't talk. I mean, I very often have teenagers that say that they don't talk to their parents about anything more than kind of their schoolwork and their athletics. And it's just more of a surface level and not getting down to the heart. Um, Also with that, I go back to the doctrine of justification. I mean, when we know who Jesus is for us, his work and worth, that he is the one perfect for us in every way that we have failed. He was perfect for us. And so we're covered and that can enable me, that can free me to know that even though I have messed up, Jesus was perfect for me. And he's God smiles at me because I am wrapped in the robes of righteousness of Christ. And, and, and that I hope can help free us of our shame. So I talk a lot, um, like when I'm speaking with parents, when I'm visiting with moms, I do some moms, um, like counseling groups, because there is such, um, a struggle. I I see it too. Just the thinking that we have to be perfect and the fear that I can't do anything wrong and the keeping up with what everybody else is doing. But I am constantly going back to justification. If we know, Jesus's work and worth for us, it frees us. It frees us even to fail and to be okay with that because we're covered. So we don't have to live in the shame and the regret of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that made me, as you're talking about that, it reminded me of the tool that you put in the book, that self-evaluation tool that, um, you know, helps parents determine, maybe start pulling on those threads. Tell us a little bit about that, that tool. And did you come up with it of your own or did you pull it from somewhere else? Uh, yeah, kind of both. I, um, you know, we, we kind of like assessments and, and there are other assessments like true counseling assessments and then just other things and books, helpful things that we look at to evaluate ourselves. So I, I pulled from a few different resources. Um, it may disappoint people, but there's not a scaling to it. So like you can, I, I want people to do the assessment <laughs> to be able to better evaluate themselves as they head into the next chapter that follows where that is. Um, but there's not a score because I don't want us to wallow in shame or to feel pride because, oh, look at me, look how good I'm doing. It's really more to help us be mindful or self-aware of the things that we're doing, because I think so often we don't really connect the dots to see how our actions connects back to what's in our heart that's driving it. That's good. Um, I know in one of the sections of the book, you talk about uh, parenting pitfalls. And I thought it was really interesting that you said one of the pitfalls as parents is uh, not having a theology of pain. 
And I, I'd love for you to dig into that a little bit more. I think it might be chapter six that just talks about how important it is for us to establish a theology of pain with our children. Yeah, because in this world, we will have trouble, right? And I've, I've been thinking about that a lot since the shooting in Nashville, that mm. if we don't have a theology for suffering, then where is our hope? How can we make sense of anything? Um, and it doesn't have to be something as traumatic and, and devastating as that, but just the, the little things in life where maybe a friend went and sat at a different table at lunch. I mean, our, we are constantly bumping up against um, things where we feel hurt or left out or um, like a failure. And so we need to help our children understand that we live in a broken world and this is normal. It's we're, we're sinners. The world is broken. We are going to experience um, trials and suffering. And this unites us to Christ. It unites us to one another. And where is our true hope found? It's not found in any of these things that we might seek in this life. We, we have something more, something greater, something eternal. Um, but so often we don't talk about these things. And then we act like when we experience trials and suffering, that it's something abnormal or that it's only happening to me. Um, instead of seeing that, like, this is actually the normal life ever since the fall. Kristen, you, in the book, talk about um, being honest with our kids about our own shortcomings and sins. And uh, for most of us who are believers, we know the, the tremendous benefit that comes when you have the me too moment and, you know, you're sharing something and someone else looks across and, you know, says me too. C.S. Lewis says that's when true friendship is born, when someone else sees you in that place and, you know, you relate to them in that way. As parents, though, there has to be some sort of um, <laughs> way to appropriately share with children, our own children, about you know some of our shortcomings and sins, and then um, maybe there are things which aren't appropriate to share. How do you navigate that? How would you suggest uh, parents out there who are trying to um, have those deeper conversations with their children and not just talk about sports or grades or whatever? Um, what tips or what what's a guidebook that you might give us for trying to uh, dip our toes in the pool of vulnerability without, you know, putting a deer in the headlights face on our kid uh, as they hear from their parents? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, because I think we tend to think, oh, I can't possibly let my child know what I was like in high school, because then they're going to have a free pass to do that too. When in actuality, as they get older, we found that it's helpful as these things come up to be honest so that they can hear from us, our grief, what we've learned, what we regret. Um, I found uh, for a long time, Rebecca thought that I was perfect because I didn't intentionally try to present myself as perfect, but I just wasn't letting her in into any of my struggles or sin. And so she had this false perception of me and felt like she couldn't possibly measure up um, because I didn't struggle with anything. And so it's important for them to, like you said, to, to me too, we're in the same boat together. So obviously as our children, you know, when they're young, there's certain things that we're not going to share, but as they get older and as we start having conversations about different things, um, you know, it, it may look different with different kids and, and what they're dealing with, but I think it is important that we let them into to real life. Like we have walked this life. We do understand. No, 
they're dealing with things on a much greater degree than we ever had to with just the shifts in culture. Um, but we are sinners and our sinful hearts are no different. And so we do have things that we can offer them to, to help them see the emptiness or the vanity and, in different issues. Um, but most of all, I mean, just identifying with our kids. And I think that when our kids get caught, say doing something, it's so easy to want to just ground them, send them to their room, shame them, um, correct the behavior. But if we understand our own hearts, we can identify with them. So there's a, a story in the book that I share when one of my sons got caught with a vape. And when he told us the reason why he did it was because he didn't want to look bad in front of the other boys that he was with. I get that. I get, I mean, I want people to think highly of me too. And I worry about other people's opinions. And so we can enter in with him as a fellow fallen sinner that struggles with the same root sin, even though it fleshes out differently, I get it. And that changed the dynamics. Now he still had consequences, but it just changed the way we dealt with him and had compassion and grace on him in his sin. No, that, that's good. And I think it just goes back to what you were saying earlier of just listening to our children. Um, that That's so often our children can be lectured to, and they just want to, to have somebody listen and to come alongside them and and to share that, that we are broken. Um, like you said, it might manifest itself in a different way, but our children do repeatedly need to hear from us how, how broken we are, even if it's in a general sense and, and us asking for uh, forgiveness. Um, I know we're needing to, to wrap this up. Uh, Kristen, I'd love for you, any kind of final words? I mean, that there's so much time and effort that you've put into this book. I mean, we've just kind of dipped in a little bit. I mean, we've talked about the appendices, uh, the parenting assessment that's helpful. You also have resources lifted, listed in the back that are helpful. Any other words you want to say as we close this out? Well, something you just said about listening made me think very often I have parents call to um, get their teenager in with me for counseling. And I might hear something like, well, good luck. She, she doesn't talk very easily. Like you're going to probably have a hard time getting things out of her. And I find teenagers are so wanting to talk that they just so often, I think that's just what they crave. They just don't have the undivided attention and connection. Um, we're so busy, we're so distracted. And so we're multitasking when we're, you know, with our children, or we're thinking that we are with them just because we're in the same room, maybe, but we're not invested actually in them. We're not paying attention to the nonverbals. We're not really seeking to know their hearts. And I find these, these teenagers come in and they just want to talk about all sorts of things. They just want to be heard and seen. So that would be an encouragement to parents just to, to slow down and take 10 minutes a day, even just to be very intentional with our, um, being with our children. Hmm. No, that's really good. And even just what you said, even 10 minutes, I mean, that can seem somewhat insignificant, but a little bit um, can go a long way. And I mean, it's just you think of 10 minutes a day and how that adds up over time. And that's a significant amount of time and influence that we have and can use as an opportunity um, to disciple our children. 
I want to remind our listeners, uh, Parenting Ahead, Preparing Now for the Teen Years is the name of the book. It's through New Growth Press. People can check it out there. They can go to Amazon. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for your time to to put into this and to, to serve the kingdom in this way. And Brent, thank you for joining us as well. Without money, oh, come and feast without pay. For the king has opened his banquet hall to the beggar, the outcast, and the slave. For the king has opened his banquet hall to the beggar, the outcast, and the slave.